Good morning. Welcome to Central, where we seek transformation through renewal in Christ. Christ, who is committed to changing our lives, our communities, and our world. And therefore, so are we. My name is Charles Godwin. I am the pastor of Congregational Care here at Central. We're continuing our sermon series, Jesus is Greater, a study of Hebrews. And today, we will begin to unpack the truth that Jesus is a greater priest than the Aaronic priests of Judaism. I say begin to unpack because we'll see this theme of Jesus being a greater high priest recur throughout our study of this letter. The perfect life, sacrificial death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus are significant parts of his being our great high priest. But so is his ascension. And how appropriate on this Ascension Sunday that our text includes Jesus' ascension as part of his high priestly ministry. So let me pray for us, and then we'll read our text, and we'll study how Jesus is a greater high priest. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we would ask that you would give us soft hearts. Help us not to harden our hearts, and help us see Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. Our text is Hebrews chapter 4, beginning in verse 14, and we'll go through chapter 5, verse 10. If you're looking in your pew Bibles, that's on page 1002. This is God's word. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, Today I have begotten you. And he says also in another place, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect... He became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. This is the living and abiding word of God. Lord, you have the words of eternal life. I grew up in a Christian home. My parents read the Bible with me. They told me about Jesus as the Savior of sinners. They took me to church. 
If someone were to ask me if I was a Christian, I certainly would have told them, yes, I believe in Jesus, that he is the savior of sinners, and I'm better than your average Joe. I pray. I try hard to go to church regularly. I'm a good son. I'm a good citizen. I'm even an Eagle Scout. I'm a great student. I was salutatorian of my class. I think most people would think that I'm a nice person. Yeah, I don't read my Bible as much as I ought to. I sometimes get angry and I'm disrespectful of others. I might fudge on the truth every once in a while. I let a bad word slip sometimes. And I do tend to drink a little much when I'm out with my friends. But overall, I'm working hard. I'm making a lot of sacrifices to do my best. Sounds pretty good, right? No. 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 While I acknowledge that Jesus was the Savior of sinners, I didn't really believe that I was a sinner through and through. That that's a big problem for us. And I really needed Jesus to be my Savior. And I had not put my hope solely in him. Instead, I was relying on my hard work, my sacrifices to somehow hopefully endear me to God. The author of our text writes to the Hebrews and to us, and he earnestly wants his readers to believe and to keep on believing that Jesus and Jesus alone is all we need to be right with God. The Jews reading this text at the time it was written, they were facing not only their own sin and brokenness, but also sin and brokenness around them and against them. They were facing hardship and persecution for their faith. So they were struggling. They were struggling to believe that Jesus was enough for them and that in the midst of their struggles that God really loved them. They were tempted to slip back into some of the old ways of Judaism, back to offering sacrifices through a high priest to appease God, a high priest who also was a sinner like them, standing on something they could do or offer rather than on God's mercy alone in the greater high priest, Christ Jesus. And we do that too. We do it as we live our own lives with our own sin and brokenness and in a broken world. I did it in high school and college with my bragging, with my list of sacrifices. I still do it as I hit a wall with my sin or I face brokenness in my life and I'm tempted either to go to things to help me temporarily forget my sin and brokenness or to offer extra works to God in order to make myself feel better. And as I talk with many of you about living your lives of faith, you do it too. So the message of the writer to the Hebrews comes to us today. Wanting for us to believe and to keep on believing that Jesus is enough. Particularly that his high priestly ministry is an anchor for us in the midst of our sin and brokenness and the sin and brokenness of the world around us. The author reminds us that since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession.
For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This morning we're going to look at how Jesus, as our great high priest, has a greater understanding of what it means to be human. And because of that, he has a greater sympathy with us as we live with temptation, sin, and brokenness. And lastly, he has a greater obedience than any other high priest or us for that matter. For his obedience is perfect without sin. First, Jesus, our great high priest, appointed by God, has a greater of understanding of what it means to be human. Jesus was a man. He was born of a mother, Mary. He grew up. He lived on this earth. He faced temptations and withstood them perfectly. He died on this earth. He was raised from the dead and ascended into heaven with his human body. He was a real man, not a part man. He was fully human. And as a real man, he represents us before God. But he also was fully God. One scholar described Jesus, our great high priest, like this. Quote, when he was born, he put the exercise of his all-knowingness and all-powerfulness and all-presence under the direction of the Father. He did not give them up, but submitted them to the Father's discretion. Though he was sinless, he had a real human body, mind, and emotions with their inherent weaknesses. He was ignorant, and he was taught. He walked like a baby before he walked like a man. He thought and talked like a baby before he thought and talked like a man. And as all humans face temptations, as we live in this sinful, broken world, Jesus did too. Our text in verse 15 tells us that he was one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Now, does this mean he faced every single temptation that we do? No, he didn't. I heard a pastor say this, he didn't experience the specific temptations peculiar to women or married people or the elderly. Neither did he experience temptations that come from having already sinned. But he did experience the essential temptations that cover, and in his case, supersede whatever we may experience. Even more, Jesus' experience of temptation was greater because the stakes were so high and because he never gave in, which we do, and every other high priest before him and after him has done. Now, we may be tempted to think he doesn't understand our specific temptations. C.S. Lewis has a marvelous quote in response to this line of thinking. He says, a silly idea is the current that good people do not know what temptation means. This is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. After all, you find out the strength of the German army by fighting against it, not giving in. You find out the strength of the wind by trying to walk against it, not by lying down. 
A man who gives in to temptation after only five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. That is why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They have lived a sheltered life by always giving in. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside us unless we try to fight it. And Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is the only man who knows to the full what temptation means. The only complete realist. Jesus, as our great high priest appointed by God, has a greater understanding of what it means to be human. And that brings us to our second point, which is because Jesus has a greater understanding of what it means to be human. He has a greater sympathy for us as we live with temptation, sin, and brokenness. Verse 15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. And then verse 7, in the days of his flesh... Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reference. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Someone described Jesus' instrument, his body, to be the same as ours except for sin. And he's described it like this. He said, if you have two pianos in the same room, and a note is struck on one, the same note will gently respond on the other, though not touched by another's hand. And this is called sympathetic resonance. He goes on to say, Christ's instrument was just like ours in every way. And he took that instrument, that body, to heaven with him. It is his priestly body. And when a chord is struck in the weakness of our human instrument, It resonates with his. There is not one note of human experience that does not play on Christ's exalted instrument. Jesus does not just imagine how we feel. He feels it. The word for sympathize here means to share in the experience of another. To sympathize through common experience. Whatever you may be going through, there is not a note you can play. Not a melody or a dirge, no minor chord, no discordant note that does not evoke a sympathetic resonance in Jesus. He mastered the instrument while he was here on earth and he wears it in heaven. Praise his name. Amen. I read where this truth of Jesus being our sympathetic great high priest, it was significant. It was significant for the original hearers of this letter. For during that time, the Stoics, they believed and taught that the primary attribute of God was apatheia. That's where we get our word apathetic. The inability to feel anything at all. The Epicureans of that time, they believed and taught God dwelled in intermedia, the spaces between the world and complete detachment. So this truth that God is not only a father, but he has such sympathy that he enters into the suffering of this world was, it still is, completely staggering. In some ways, it's impossible for us, um, with our heritage of having the full biblical revelation, 
to appreciate how revolutionary this idea of a sympathetic God was to the original hearers. But it is significant news for us too. The Apostle John describes our sympathetic high priest in a passage that's familiar to many. In John 11, Jesus goes to visit his close friends within days of their brother Lazarus' death. Martha and her sister Mary, they heard Jesus was coming and they go to see him before he even gets to their house. I want you to think with me for a minute about Jesus' response to them in this tragedy. At least two times in the passage, we see the language that Jesus was deeply moved. Scholars write this same word is used to express the intense breathing of a war horse as it gets ready for battle. For us, though, it would sort of be like the angry, involuntary gasp that happens when we see or we experience or we hear of some great brokenness or tragedy. And that's his human, that's Jesus' human response here. And he's mad at death. And he has this response not just once, but at least twice. A pastor friend of mine said, Jesus has come face to face with a powerful demonstration of how broken the world is, and he's plain mad. He's angry at the brokenness he sees and feels. And his other response in that passage of sympathy that we see is he wept. Jesus wept. It's significant crying. Like when you see or hear something and you know the tears just kind of start to flow and you can't stop them. It's not wailing, but it's the kind of weeping that entails deep and sometimes uncontrolled breathing. These are just a sample of the expressions that Jesus feels as he lives his life as a man without sin, but deeply affected by it. Our sympathetic great high priest Jesus expresses deep emotions at brokenness and he allows us to do the same. And more so than any other high priest, Jesus deals most gently with us, who our text refers to as ignorant and wayward. Paul reminds us how Jesus, our great high priest, deals most gently with us in his letter to the Romans, where he writes this, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, We also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Jesus, our great high priest, has a greater sympathy with us as we live with temptation, sin, and brokenness. And lastly, Jesus has a greater obedience than any other high priest, or us for that matter, For his obedience is perfect. 
without sin. Look at verse 15. In Jesus, we have a greater high priest. He was human who sympathizes with us in our weaknesses, being tempted as we are, yet without sin. He obeys perfectly, the Bible says, to the point of death, even death on a cross. Verse 8, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Our great high priest, in obedience to his father, gave his perfect life as the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And after dying, the scriptures say the veil in the temple was torn indicating that no more sacrifice for sins was needed. There's no more need for a sinful priest to go into the Holy of Holies once per year and make sacrifices for his sins and ours and then come back the next and do it again. In Christ, we now have direct access to God. Christ's perfect record is accounted to those who in obedient faith believe in him and his atoning sacrificial death on their behalf. Verse 9, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who believe, obey him, and we obey by believing him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now a quick aside, because we will talk later in our study in chapter 7 more in depth about Melchizedek, but here... We need to acknowledge him. He's mentioned in our passage twice in relationship to Jesus' high priestly ministry. One of those is a quote from Psalm 110. Melchizedek is described in the Bible as without ancestry, without a beginning of days or end of life. And he is seen by scholars as a foreshadowing of Christ. And the point made here is that Jesus is our great high priest who will endure forever. Our great high priest, in obedience to his father, gave his life as the atoning sacrifice for our sins, his perfect life. Now, after our great high priest, Jesus, died the death we deserve on a cross, he was buried. And the third day, he was raised from the dead, signifying that our great enemy, sin has been defeated and no longer has to keep us separated from God. Our author wants us readers to obey God by believing and keep on believing that Christ is our great high priest who is the single, final, perfect sacrifice for sins. Atonement is accomplished God's wrath is completely satisfied. His was a greater obedience. So once Christ has been offered, and he has been, as the atoning sacrifice for our sins over 2,000 years ago, and not only for ours, but for the sins and brokenness of the world, he's the sacrifice appointed by God in love to bear the awful load of our sins. And when he finished, crucified, dead, buried, resurrected, resurrected. We heard earlier Jesus, after appearing on earth, ascended into heaven. And what did he do next? He sat down. He sat down at the right hand of God, indicating there is no longer any sacrificial offering needed for sins. His atoning work was finished. 
He rules and reigns as king and priest, now offering prayers and supplications for us from his throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of our need. Why do you think this is important to those original readers who read this letter many years ago? Well, in the midst of their own sin and the challenges of life, persecution, they were tempted while having trusted in Jesus to go back to their old sacrificial system. Maybe out of fear, maybe because it's what they knew. It's easy, there's comfort in the scene, just in case Jesus wasn't enough. The author encourages and reminds them to believe and to keep on believing. Jesus, our great high priest, is enough. What he has done once as the final sacrifice is enough to forgive them for their sins and to make the broken in them and this world unbroken. Amen. Mm, amen. Now, why is it important for us who read this letter today? Maybe you're like me when I was in high school and college. You acknowledge Jesus is the Savior of sinners. Maybe you've even prayed for him to be your Savior. But you examine your daily living and what you really depend on to make you right with God. And maybe you see that it's your sacrifices. It's your niceness, your fairness, your being a good friend, your being a good spouse, your being a good parent, the fact that you don't speed or drink too much. You haven't committed the big sins, whatever those are. The fact that you take care of your body. The fact that you don't have any debt and you have plenty put away for rainy days in retirement. The fact that you stay home with your kids and you don't work. And the list could go on. Many of these are really good things. But God doesn't need those sacrifices to love you as his own. The author encourages and reminds us to believe and to keep on believing Jesus, our great high priest, is enough. What he has done once as the final sacrifice is enough to forgive us for our sins and to make the broken in us in this world unbroken. Or maybe it's just the opposite for you. You know, you know you need the sacrifice of Jesus. But in the midst of your sin and your brokenness and the sin and brokenness of the world around you, you just can't let it go. Or you feel like you've really committed a big sin. Or you just keep sinning the same way over and over again. So when you fall, and you do, and you will, you confess it over and over again, just in case God didn't hear you the first time. Or you weren't sincere or sorrowful enough. Hymn writer Horatius Bonner writes, It's not all my prayers or my sighs or my tears that can bear the awful load. Thy work alone, O Christ, can ease this weight of sin. Jesus has conquered our greatest enemy, death. Your sin does not define you. You belong to God as his beloved through faith in Jesus Christ. The author encourages and reminds us to believe and keep on believing. Jesus is enough. What our great high priest has done once as the final sacrifice is enough to forgive us our sins and to make the broken on us and this world unbroken. Jesus paid it all. Your sins are no longer held against you. Corey Timboom put it well when she said, God has taken our sin, he has thrown it into the sea of forgetfulness, and he has posted a sign that says, no fishing allowed. 
One other sacrifice that we use for ourselves and for others is shame. So we live our lives, as a friend of mine reminded me, as ones paroled but not pardoned. Sometimes we hear, we believe, we say things like, every time I sin, every time you sin, you crucify Jesus all over again, or you drive the nails deeper into his hands. Friends, that is not true. Why would Jesus say if it is, it is finished if it's not finished? A pastor friend alluded to how we struggle to believe this. He says there's this plate, tape that plays over and over in our head. It says things like, if, you, if I don't get serious about such and such area of my life, I don't know what God's going to do to me. Or it says, if I don't start praying more, if I don't control my temper, if I don't get a handle on my language, if I don't start being more generous with my time and money, I don't know what God's going to do to me. Then he says, when we believe that way, the real theology we are embracing is that I will do these things to appease God and keep him from hurting me. Friends, these are lies. It is finished and always will be finished. Christ was sacrificed once. You sin, I sin, I'm not making light of that. It took the death of Jesus to do away with it. But if our faith is in Christ, we are not defined by our sin. God is not ashamed of you. He finished the shame. He scorned it on the cross. He was sad by the brokenness when he lived on earth as a man, but he's not sad anymore. You know why? One scholar said it's because he's victorious. He's fully aware of the broken world in which we still live with our own sin and brokenness and the brokenness around us, but he's not sad anymore. He is sitting at the right hand of the Father because he's done. In heaven, people aren't thinking about what has to be done. He did it. He finished the curse. The effects of it are being turned back and one day all will be made new. Death is dead, the song says. Love has won. Christ has conquered. Believe and keep on believing. Jesus and his high priestly ministry is enough. What he has done once as the final sacrifice is enough to forgive us for our sins and to make the broken in us in this world unbroken. So friends... Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We don't have to keep our distance. We can draw near to Jesus. So do it. If this is the first time you've drawn near to him, please come talk to me after the service or another one of our pastors or staff. We love to talk with you and to share in the joy of your salvation with you. Draw near to Jesus. It is a throne of grace. Puritan Thomas Wilcox exhorts us, don't look a moment away from Jesus. Don't look upon your sin first, look upon Christ first. When you mourn for your sin, if you can see Jesus, then cast your sin's guilt away. Let sin break your heart, but not your hope in the gospel. When we come to God, we must bring nothing but Christ with us. It is important for us to believe and keep on believing that through Christ's high priestly atoning work, we can draw near to God 
and find grace to help us in our time of need as we live our daily lives. Sometimes sin and brokenness seem so overwhelming, don't they? It's not gonna be this way forever. There is a truer truth that the writer wants us to believe as we live our lives of faith until he comes again. Death, sin, brokenness no longer have the ultimate victory. They are being undone. All is being made new. And so the author writes to us, and he wants us to believe and keep on believing Jesus is enough. He is a greater high priest with a greater understanding of what it means to be human. And because of that, he has a greater sympathy with us as we live in our own temptation, sin, and brokenness. And he has a greater obedience than any other high priest or us, for that matter. His obedience is perfect without sin. I want to conclude by reading back to you the words we sang earlier. Before the throne of God above, you have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love. Whoever lives and pleads for you, your name is graven on his hands. Your name is written on his heart. You know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid you thence depart. No tongue can bid you thence depart. So when Satan tempts you to despair and he tells you of the guilt within, upward you look and see him there who made an end to all of your sin. Because the sinless Savior died, your sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on you, him, and pardon you. To look on him and pardon you. Behold him there, the risen lamb. Your perfect spotless righteousness. The great unchangeable I am, the king of glory and of grace. One with himself, you cannot die. Your soul is purchased by his blood. Your life is hid with Christ on high, with Christ, your Savior and your God, with Christ, your Savior and your God. Let's pray. Father, help us to believe and keep on believing that through Christ's high priestly atoning work, we can draw near to you and find mercy and grace to help in our time of need. Thank you for your great love for us, and we pray in Christ Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen.